Last week, we began examining the biblical account of the journey of the Magi or wise men to meet Jesus. This is the primary account associated with the historical Christian feast that we call Epiphany. And recall that the word Epiphany itself means revelation. Jesus is being revealed. And as I said last week, the three main passages of Scripture associated with Epiphany are the journey of the Magi, and then the baptism of Christ in the Jordan River by John the Baptist, and then Christ's first miracle at Cana of Galilee when he changed water into wine. Jesus is being revealed to the world. The Messiah has come. And the Father is showing the world who this Messiah is and what his work will be. But along with that revelation, there are some, maybe we would call them secondary revelations that follow in the train of the revelation of Jesus Christ. And that's what we've been looking at, those revelations, last week, and then we'll finish up this week. Last week, we noted that God revealed the nature of his kingdom through the journey of the Magi that it would be made up of diverse people, the wealthy, the poor, women, men, the young, the old, influential and powerless, all together in one body, the church, that Jesus is the great unifier, the only one capable of bringing Jew and Gentile together. And scripture tells us that representatives of every people, tribe, tongue, and nation will be part of the kingdom of God. Secondly, we saw that God reveals the human heart. We see this through the reaction of the Magi, then the chief priests, and then of Herod himself to the birth of Christ. And thirdly, we saw that God revealed the kind of Messiah that Jesus came to be. That he was king, that he was God, but also that he was a suffering servant who had come to die in order to liberate and redeem and save his people. This week, I want us to look at one final revelation, that in this account of Epiphany, God reveals the life of a disciple. In some ways, it's the first template that God gives in this new, this new era of history where the Messiah has come God himself has taken on flesh something unprecedented and unheard of. And in this very first account, God is showing us in a way, showing his people, this is what the life of one of my disciples is going to look like. And he gives us that template. Now, I want to say one thing quickly before we start, that... For those of you who are concerned that it's already February and we're still talking about Christmas stuff, remember that the Magi did not meet Jesus in the manger. The shepherds did. But the Magi came months and potentially even two years later. So all during that time, from the time that Jesus was born and the star appeared to them in the east, they were making preparations and then traveling and seeking and searching to find the one who was born king of the Jews. Now, there are several textual clues that point us toward the fact that Jesus may have been as old as two 
when the Magi visited. Why is that? Well, when the Magi encounter Herod, Herod is very specific, and the question he asks them, it's a, the text says that he questioned them carefully to find out exactly when the star had appeared. That was important to Herod. And scholars think most likely it was important to Herod because he wanted to find out more or less when this baby had been born so that he could then calculate approximately how old that baby might have been. And then Herod follows through, as we know, by ordering the execution, the murder of all the children under two years of age in the region of Bethlehem. So even though we're talking about events that we associate with Christmas, they actually occurred up to two years later. I'll be reading this morning this account again from Matthew chapter 2, the account of the call and journey of the Magi. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who's been born king of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Christ was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people, Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and make a careful search for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen in the east went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and of incense and of myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. The first aspect of the life of a disciple that I want to emphasize this morning is this. A disciple is chosen and called by God. It starts with him. He is the initiator, not us. Why magi? I kind of already asked this question last week, but we have to begin by wondering why they're in this story at all. Were they the only ones to see that star? The star appears and they're the, they're the only ones who see it? Were they the only people in the world at the time who had the, the financial means to make this kind of a journey? Um, why didn't God just show the star to people who lived closer Right? Why didn't he just show it to everyone who lived in Israel? Access would have been much easier. And along with these questions, why would the Magi even start this journey at all? What convinced them? Not only to journey, but what showed them where to go? They see a star and they say, ah, a star. 
So therefore, a king of the Jews has been born. Uh, the Jews there in Israel, uh, the Levant, so we're going to travel to Jerusalem and uh, check with the king there, and he'll direct us where we need to go. Got it. Okay, all of that from a star. Let's go. We usually imagine, don't we, three magi. We don't know how many there were, but this is what we imagine, right? We've seen in many paintings and drawings, three magi, and they're, they're always on camels. They're always on camels. There's, there's no evidence of that in Scripture, but they're always on camels. And their journey always looks idyllic and comfortable. There's one in particular I'm thinking of where it's, a night, it's nighttime, and there are these three silhouettes of these kings riding on camels, you know. There it is. <laughs> Where might I have seen that before? And what, in that, in that picture, think about it for a moment. First of all, you see all this grass. I don't know if there was grass. I think there was a lot of sand. Um, and I think the sand got into everything. Uh, you know how sand does. You go to the beach and you leave the beach and you go back to your car or the bus and you realize that there is sand in places you never thought sand could get to. <laughs> and, um, and, and then what do you see? You see the night lit up. It's bright. The way is clear. Why? Because the star is shining. Now we're going to see in a little bit that that's not an accurate picture. And we'll understand why. So we, we have this this idea of the star that's blazing ahead of them, that's illuminating the, illuminating the way and showing them where they should go so the journey is clear. They know where they're to head. But if we read the text carefully, we see that the they saw the star in the east. So back home, they saw the star, right? And then they didn't see it again until they got to Bethlehem. The star appeared over the place where Jesus was over the house where Jesus was. And when they saw the star, they were overjoyed. We'll get back to that. How do they know what the star meant? How do they know where they should go? There's only one explanation for this, and it lies in the sovereignty of God. God chose to reveal the announcement of the birth of Jesus to these men. It was his idea, it was his initiative, and it was his choice. It was not because the Magi deserved it, it wasn't because they were more righteous than anyone else. All through the Christmas story, we see God's sovereign choice at work. God chose Mary. Did he choose Mary because she was more devout and more holy than any other woman in the world? No. Did he choose Joseph to be the earthly father of his son Jesus because Joseph was the best carpenter in the whole world? And so he knew that he could build the best furniture for his son? No. Because Joseph was the most righteous man in the world? No. He chose the shepherds to reveal Christ's birth to. Is it because the shepherds were so righteous, so deserving? None of it is because of the worth of the people or the worthiness of the people. It is because of God's sovereign choice. We need to remember this today because it's still true that God chooses his disciples. Ephesians chapter 1 makes this really clear. It's a repeated theme over and over. You whom he called, he, you whom he chose, he also called. And there's a double application for, for, to, for us today in this regard. First of all, if you are a believer in Christ, if you are a disciple, be thankful. 
Now I want to talk to those of you who are not, maybe I'm going to say not yet, disciples of Jesus Christ. Now I know that those of you who attend Calvary regularly are saying, wait, this is what he always does at the end of the sermon. But I'm doing it here near the beginning because this is where the text brings us. If God is calling you, and what I mean by that is if, if you are not a disciple of Jesus, but you feel this conviction in your mind and in your heart to pursue an understanding of God and of Jesus Christ, his son, let me say to you this morning, don't resist that. Because even though God chooses and God calls, there is an element of human response to the choice and the calling of God. And the book of Hebrews cautions people not to resist that calling because you don't know how long that call will remain. You don't know how long that conviction will still be there. Don't resist it. And when I say don't resist it, what, are you being, what is God calling you to do? What is he inviting you to do? First of all, he's inviting you to repent of your sin, to acknowledge, I, I am a sinner, meaning I am broken beyond repair, and I have no ability to fix what I have broken. To repent of our sin, to acknowledge that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that he died an innocent death, but that he rose from the dead as king and victor over sin and death. And he invites you to receive the benefit of his death, that his death would pay the price for your sin and your brokenness. And in its place, he would give you forgiveness and healing, and your life would belong to him. And John chapter 1 says, therefore, those who believe in Christ, to them are given the right to become children of God. And so Jesus would make you a daughter or a son of the Most High God. That's what you are being called to. Don't resist it. Again, Hebrews says, as long as it is called today, meaning there is a time where that call will no longer exist. There is a time that will be too late. But for now, it's still today. Today, if you hear his voice, says Hebrews, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. He's talking to the Jewish people, reminding them of their historical, of the historical event of the Exodus. Don't hard, harden your heart. I said there's an aspect of human response to the choosing and the call of God. Think about it in this way. Some of you, maybe most of you, when you were of school age and you were in maybe physical education class, there came a moment at times where the teacher would line everybody up and the teacher would choose two captains, right? And the captains would choose teams. And for some of you, that was a time of glory because you knew that you were going to be one of the first few chosen. For others of you, that might have been one of the most terrifying times of your school career because you knew the loneliness of being the last one or one of the last ones. And the loneliness of being chosen, not because you were chosen, but because you were left over. Jesus chooses. 
and he points, you know, if Jesus, if we put Jesus in the context of the captain there looking at the line of people, and as he chooses, and he points to you and he said, I want you as my disciple. The human response is to say yes and come to Jesus. If that offer is made and we say no, that's then on us. So you are invited this morning. If you do not yet know Jesus, I want you to imagine Christ reaching out to you and saying, I want you for my disciple. I want to make you a daughter or a son of my Father, God Most High. Come to me. The second picture of a life of a disciple is that it is a life of faith lived out in obedience. Now again, I'm going to go to the author of Hebrews here because that person gives us the clearest definition of faith in Scripture. And that definition is this. Faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. Now I want us to bring that, that certainty in the hope that we have and that confidence in what we don't see, I want to pair that with what the what James the Apostle writes. In, in his epistle, in his letter, he says, faith without works is dead. What does he mean? It means that if we are truly convinced in our hearts of faith in Christ, it's inevitable that a disciple will live out that faith in obedience. Okay? So someone who says, I believe such and such, but never acts upon it, never lives it out, then that person's faith, as James says, is, is, is dead. It's not true faith. So the confidence in what we don't see and in what we've been promised, going hand in hand with the works of obedience of faith. And isn't this exactly what we see with the Magi? The star is revealed to them along with their meaning. So they are given that. And I want to emphasize this again. God gives that to them. He chooses, he calls, and he is the one who gives them the foundation for faith. Today he has given us his word. He has given us the revelation of Christ. He has given that to us. That is the basis and the foundation of faith. Based upon that, the Magi put it into practice, which means what? They start the journey. They make preparations and they go. So the life of a disciple is a life of faith lived out in obedience. We believe Jesus, therefore we obey his word. We believe the promises of God, therefore we act in accordance with them. The disciple is certain of the hope they have, even if there has been no visible proof. And since they are convinced of the truth, they live it. So the question to ask ourselves is this. If you are a disciple of God, how is God calling you today to live out your faith? If you believe it, if you're convinced of it, if you are sure of what you hope for and certain of what you do not see, what is God calling you to do about that? How is he calling you to obey? The third example 
of a life of the disciple is that it is a life of perseverance. So it begins with God. God chooses and God calls. And then there's the human response of faith lived out in obedience. And then thirdly, we persevere in that obedience. We continue in it. I imagine that when the star first appeared to the Magi, they were excited and intrigued. We know they were motivated because they made preparations to set out on a long, arduous, expensive journey to an uncertain destination. And again, I reference this, this, this picture behind me. Uh, you know, we, we, we see such a comfortable scene. We would like to be there, right? I'll go for an evening camel ride, you know, uh, with cool breeze blowing and the sky nicely lit up through the rustling grass. It was not easy. It was not peaceful. It was not comfortable. It was not cheap. And it wasn't short. Now, if, if we consider today the inconvenience of making a long trip, okay? Let's say we're going uh, a transatlantic or trans-Pacific flight. Um, there are inconveniences involved, right? There's the price, first of all. You have to find a price that fits in your budget, if that's even possible. Uh, then you have to work out the details of visa, visas, and you have to figure out uh, if your passport is up to date. You have to find someone to stay with your dog. You have to figure out who's going to take care of your house. All these things, and it sounds so inconvenient, doesn't it? Brothers and sisters, we have no idea, right? We have no idea the price of this kind of journey at this point in history, what that would have cost these men. Here's a personal confession. I'm good at beginning things. I'm really good at beginning things. I'm not always so good at following them through to completion. I can imagine myself as one of those magi excited and energized by seeing the star, pumped up, beginning that journey, riding on the wave of emotion, and then a few days into the sand and into the sun and into the smell of the camels and into the uncertainty and the distance. I think it would have been pretty easy for me to convince myself that God was telling me to go back. But the Magi persevered in their obedience in order to fulfill their calling. For those who are chosen and called by God to be his disciples, our lives will involve sacrifice. They're going to involve sacrifice. And, and it will also necessitate perseverance. Perseverance means following through to the end. Starting the race is important. But it, it doesn't mean anything if we don't finish the race. And uh, if you like to chuckle at the misfortune of other people, go to YouTube and type in people falling in a race. And you will get thousands of hits of people in some sort of foot race who trip and fall right before the finish line or who have, you know, run into a hurdle. You know, those hurdles, a hurdle race, they run right into it and fall and everything. I mean... They don't finish. It doesn't matter that they may have been leading the race all the way through until the very end. And so the challenge to those who are disciples is see it through. Don't give up. Don't give up in obedience to Christ. 
Don't give up on your faith. God has called you. He has chosen you. He has given you the foundation for faith in his word and in Jesus Christ and in the church and in his Holy Spirit. He's given that to you. Live it out in obedience and persevere in that obedience. Hebrews 3.14 is a verse that plays around with verb tenses. Because the author writes, we have come to share in Christ. Now, He's speaking in the present tense, right? We have come to share in Christ now if we hold firmly till the end the confidence we had at first. So he's saying right now we have come to share in Christ if we follow through to the end. On what? On what we knew at the beginning. So in God's economy, in God's perspective, it's all one. The beginning, the middle, and the end. We follow through now, today, until the end, in the confidence that he gave us at first. Brothers and sisters, fellow disciples, don't give up. Don't give in. Jesus has chosen you and called you, and we must persevere, even in sacrifice, to finish the race. The fourth aspect of the life of a disciple is that it is a life of tension with the world. The life of a disciple of Christ will be a life that is in tension with the world. Is there a more clear example of anti-Christian sentiment than King Herod? That is the spirit, literally, of Antichrist. The spirit that would destroy the person and work of the Messiah. Herod is paranoid, devious, deceptive, manipulative, and literally tries to kill Jesus. How can we not see in Herod the same evil that we would see today in abortion, in the desire to end life because it is an inconvenience to self? Herod is threatened by the birth of this king of the Jews. And he wants to do everything he can to end it. So there will be no rival to his throne. And the Magi are kind of thrown into this tense political social situation without any idea of its history or what's going on. Herod presents himself to them as a concerned monarch, one who is interested in their quest, one who also wants to go and worship this baby, this child. Now, fortunately, and, and we see the Magi's continued obedience as they respond to the dream that they were given. Having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned home by another route. Again, persevering in obedience. These men are, are quite remarkable, really. The work of God in them is quite remarkable. Um, but what I want us to see here is that the life of a disciple will be at odds with the values of the world. The, the Magi really had a choice. Will we please the monarch of the world, the spirit of the age, Herod, or will we please and honor this baby that has been revealed to us as king, as God, and as suffering servant? And there was no way, right, that the Magi could please both. How could they keep Herod happy and still honor Christ at the same time. Brothers and sisters, we can't please God and the world. 
And there's a lot of pressure on disciples of God to conform to the world, to take positions that are acceptable to the world, to seek our honor from the world rather than from God. But every time we give in to that pressure, every time we compromise, we align ourselves a little more closely with Herod than with Christ. Now, please hear me. I am not saying that a disciple of God needs to do everything they can do to be as a obnoxious as possible to the world, okay? We don't have tension with the world because we try to have tension with the world. The tension with the world will grow naturally out of a commitment to Jesus Christ. Jesus was the one who said to his disciples, you know what? People are going to hate you because of me. That wasn't a possibility. That was a promise. That was a statement of fact. He said it to the 12, all men will hate you because of me. So we have to choose, a disciple has to choose where our allegiance lies. Does it lie with the world and conformity with the world and being liked by the world and being accepted by the world? Or does it lie with Jesus Christ, being loved by Christ, being known by Christ, being accepted by Christ, being renewed by Christ, and living for his honor and glory? The life of a disciple is a life at odds with the world. Lastly, I'm sorry, next to last, but this one's a quick point. The life of a disciple is a life of joy. And I know that we, we focus, it's easier to focus on the challenges and the pain and the discomfort and the obedience. And we forget the joy of the Lord, which is our strength. When the Magi see the star again in Bethlehem, what is their response? They were overjoyed. They weren't just joyed, they were overjoyed. The King James Version states it like this, they were filled with exceeding great joy. It's like there's not enough modifiers that we can throw on here to describe their joy. Exceeding great joy. After all of their discomfort and all of their investment and all of their faithfulness and all their perseverance, they are rewarded. But what is the reward? They see the faithfulness of God. And that's what gives them this joy. They see that star and they're like, yes, we were right. Not we were right, like I have, I have the right, but they're saying we were right to obey. What was revealed to us back then was the truth. And God is reaffirming it to us now. See, that's the same star. Guys, you remember, that's the star, that's the star. And there's this, I don't know if they were still on their camels, but they're celebrating They're excited. I don't think they were like, yes, exceeding great joy. Mm. Come, brothers, in joy let us proceed unto this house and encounter therein what we may. They were excited because they saw the faithfulness of God. And, And they see that their obedience was rightly placed. Their faith was rightly placed. I think often we, and when I say we, I mean we, myself included, we want that joy. We want it. We long for it. But we want to skip the obedience and the perseverance. We don't earn the joy, okay? It's not God saying, nope, I'm not going to give you joy until you prove yourself. It's that the joy 
is a natural gift, a natural result of obedience and perseverance. So the Magi are filled with that excitement when they first see the star, they embark on the journey, they follow it through to the end. And when they have been faithful and persevere, they arrive there at their destination and the faithfulness of God is shown and revealed to them and they are filled with exceeding great joy. God had not forgotten them. God had not abandoned them. Their obedience was not a mistake. Lastly, and now it's for real, it's easy for us maybe to miss the main point. In examining all that the Magi did, we might get distracted. But the main point is this. Everything they did was focused on Jesus Christ. And that's the primary truth about the life of a disciple. It is a life lived for Christ. Why, why did the Magi travel? Were they following the star just because it was a natural phenomenon? No, they followed it to find the king of the Jews. They didn't sacrifice their resources, time, and comfort to study the science behind the star, to make some great new scientific discovery. They did it to meet Jesus. The life of a disciple is a life committed to Jesus Christ. And brothers and sisters, let me say this, that you know that that sounds like a cliche because you've heard it so many times. I have heard it so many times. But you know, a cliche becomes a cliche because it's kind of based in truth. And we need to hear that cliche or what we think is a cliche and we need to drill through and get to the point, which is this. Because it's, it sounds like a cliche to us. We do not often ask ourselves the question, is my life truly being lived for the glory of Jesus? Are the things that I do, even the good things, am I really doing them primarily to serve and honor and glorify my king. And you might look at me and say, well, it's easy for you. You're a pastor. You're doing godly things all the time. But you know what? It's just as easy for me to preach out of my flesh, to carry out my duties as pastor of the church out of my flesh, as it is for you in your context to live and work and act out of your flesh. Is Jesus our goal? Is Jesus our purpose? In your job, where you work, do you do it well primarily because you want to please Christ? Is your work done ultimately for him? Let me ask parents a question, those of you who are parents, myself included. Are we, as we raise our children, are we doing that with Christ as our goal? So that even as we invest in them and discipline them and raise them and love them and, and, and do all these things for them, are we raising them with our eyes toward Christ? saying, Jesus, we want to love our children. We want to raise them because we love you and because we want to honor you. 
That's probably a question, not probably, that is a question we need to ask ourselves much more often than we do. Because ultimately, the life of a disciple begins with the calling and the choice, the sovereign choice of God. And as we see in the story of the Magi, where does it end? In the presence of Jesus Christ, in worship, bowing before him, in joy. The clearest, most succinct description of the life of a disciple comes from Jesus' own mouth. And it's repeated three times in three of the Gospels, in Matthew and Mark and in Luke. Jesus said, anyone who would come after me must deny himself, take up his cross, follow me. And that last one, follow me, it can't be done if the first two are not done first. That's kind of the point. We'll skip to the follow because I don't want to really deal with the deny and the take up the cross. But we follow by denying self, taking up cross, and following him. Is Jesus truly the focus, the motivation, the purpose and relationship of my life? The great irony and yet the great blessing of the gospel is that while the life of a disciple requires all these things, Jesus himself is the one who's made them possible. His death set us free from slavery to sin. And he lives his life in and through his disciples. He chooses us. He calls us. He gives us faith. He energizes us for obedience. He enables us to persevere. He gives us courage to resist the temptations of the world. And he guards our souls as his eternal possession. We act this truth out at the communion table. We act out, we enact and remember the death of Jesus, but also we see and experience and remember the indwelling of Christ in his church. And it's a very clear picture because as bread and juice go into our mouths and down our throats and into our stomachs and into our system and nourish our bodies, that is a picture of the spirit of God living in his church. And that is what brings regeneration. That is what brings new life. That is what makes disciples.